Episode nine of the Book of Basketball podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by State Farm. Just like basketball, the game of life is unpredictable. Some players end up in the pyramid, some don't. Talk to a State Farm agent, get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. You know it was unexpected? Daryl Morey becoming an NBA general manager someday. I think the odds on that in 1999 would have been about, I don't know, 15,000 to one. Talk to a State Farm agent today about combining your home and auto insurance and get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected State Farm. Meanwhile, this NBA season, Mountain Dew is all about the threes, the shot that's changing the game. Let's talk about who we think would make the top three best three-point shooters in the last decade. I'm going to go with Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, and Steph Curry a second time because he's the greatest shooter I've ever seen in my life. Brought to you by Mountain Dew, the official beverage of the NBA, Dew, the Dew. All right, so last week we did two podcasts about James Harden. One was a pyramid podcast with me and Zach Lowe. The other was a breakdown of the last three games of the Western Finals, James Harden's last three games in Oklahoma City. Joe House and I broke that down. This is the third part of the Harden pseudo trilogy. It is a conversation that I had with Rockets GM, Daryl Morey. We did this before the season before the whole Hong Kong controversy happened. So that's why it's not addressed in this interview. But I want to talk to Daryl about his basically 15-year odyssey of getting into professional basketball when the Celtics were bought by Wick Grossback and his group in 2003, all the way through to the 2018 Western Finals and Daryl having the best chance he's ever had in his whole career of actually winning the title and what went wrong but more importantly, the journey along the way and how he was ahead of his time in a lot of ways. He had some luck, which we're going to cover, and then was able to latch on to one of the best players of this century, James Harden, and everything crests in that Western Finals, Game 5. One of the biggest what-ifs of this decade and obviously Daryl's career too. We cover all that and a lot more. This is the Book of Basketball 2.0 podcast. My name is Bill Simmons. Here we go. Can't do a podcast about what's happened in basketball, especially the last 10 years, without talking about what's happened with team building and advanced metrics and all the stuff Daryl Morey has been at the forefront of. We've known each other since, I'm going to say, 05, 06 range. Earlier. Yeah, maybe even earlier. 2003, I think. Something like that. You um, were a Celtics fan, I think. Yeah, I was a Celtics then. fan. You were yeah. working for the Celtics. I was, yeah. Giving was, you the secret sauce. Yeah, you were. So you get the Rockets job in 06, and nobody fully understands what that's going to mean for uh, for the sport. On top of that, you have some other people on some other teams who are also looking at these numbers and trying to figure out a different way to evaluate basketball. You're taking all of that information, but then also using traditional, the scouting, all that stuff, and trying to merge it. When did when did you start to think this was actually going to work? I thought right away. I was a pretty confident guy. Um, I, I think the best advice I got when I came to the Rockets was they said, 
and I think this was uh, Wick and Steve both uh, both said, look, everyone gets fired in this job, so you should just do it the way you think is best because you don't want to get fired and say, I should have done something different. So from right away, I mean, we were looking obviously at information with Mike Zarin and Danny Ainge in Boston and already had some early success. So we're pretty confident that it would work. Who are the other teams in the mid 2000s that were thinking this way? Dallas was early on some of this stuff, right? It was Phoenix. Phoenix was kind of in there a little bit. Phoenix a, a little bit. Uh, obviously Boston, Boston Celtics were, were big. Um, Portland because of Paul Allen a little yeah. bit. Um, so it was, uh, but it was a pretty, pretty early days. Moneyball obviously, uh, made everyone pay attention. I think that came out in 2003. And your background initially, you you got it, you were working at Stats Inc., which was yeah, kind with, of a precursor to this whole movement. Yeah, Bill James. And then you can give me, give us the 40 seconds. Yeah, so I, was, I worked at Stats Inc., which was a baseball firm, uh, with another person there. I started working on the basketball side. Uh, this is in the mid-90s. I was working on analytics in basketball. I played basketball, but the firm only had clients in baseball, so it was pretty much all baseball at Statsing. Tried to get a job in sports and couldn't. That's a pretty familiar story for a lot of people maybe listening. It's, yeah. it's really tough. So from 96 to 2002, I went to business school. I worked at startups. I did a whole bunch of different things, hoping to get back into sports. And then serendipity sort of came along where the consulting firm I was at uh, ended up getting hired by Wick Rausbeck to, uh, to work on the Celtics purchase. So then you start helping out with the front office. When do you start feeling there's like a real advantage with some of this stuff? Like that just people are doing this wrong. I thought there's a real advantage when we were like talking to Wick, Grousebeck, and Steve Pelyuka in terms of purchasing the team. Uh, we we thought there was a lot of opportunity on the business side, which uh, your friend Sully could talk about. Yeah. I mean, he, he knew it was there. He just didn't have the the political power in the organization to do it. So the transition really, really let Sully flourish and make a lot of changes on the business side. And then on the basketball side, you know, I was telling Wick, look, there's just a lot of opportunity here to make smarter transactions like like the Oakland A's were doing at the time. I was 20, 20 no, I was exactly 30. And uh, he brought in Danny Ainge, who, as you know, has been unbelievable ever since. So... Was there a player in 0203 that you were like, that's an example of a guy who is completely undervalued? That's a great question. So in 0203. There must have been somebody who I was mean, like the, shooting. I mean, the Celtics threes. were so bad. So we, we weren't really looking at players who we could like plug in. Yeah. We were looking at like how do we how do we get like the foundational stars? So right. um that was you know what Danny was focused on from from day one and made trades like getting Ricky Davis because he had a lot of upside, but that 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 caused a lot of turmoil in the organization. Uh we all thought it was a good move because he had a lot of upside, didn't pan out. Um and then obviously drafted like Al Jefferson and uh, Gerald Green and high upside guys like that. Uh, and that sort of started it and obviously led to them winning the title in 2008. So, and one of the things was collect as many as assets as possible and try to cash them in, which a lot of teams, I would say most teams weren't thinking that way of if we just, if we take this pot and we put some ingredients in the pot, maybe somebody will want to trade for the whole pot. You and know, then was, that leads with the KG trade. 
Yeah, but you know who was always thinking that way was Red Auerbach. He was yeah. like so far ahead of everybody, and obviously Danny had worked with him, so it wasn't like all that innovative to say, "Hey, let's go chase the top star players in the league." Uh, that's obviously still the job, more or less. Um, I don't remember somebody actually doing that as a two-year plan because Red they Arbuck almost went in with drafting Larry Bird two years early. Yeah, that's true. But yeah. I, but like they almost traded for Iverson too. He almost took a lot of the assets they had and went in for that. We that ended up not working out. Yeah, and he's superstar. When I was at the Rockets at first, we almost made a bunch of trades that would have been would have been a a, a problem, but uh yeah, no, it, the actually I was talking to Jeff Lunau this this week at the Astros and the one thing he said that he thought was different between baseball and basketball is what you're saying is that we often a lot of our trades are just sort of stepping stones to other trades and yeah. theirs are just very he's like our trades are so simple they're just like we give you a couple minor league guys we get a guy who helps us for a couple months and no one does any trades but that that's probably exaggerating but that was roughly what he was saying i didn't actually realize baseball was so simple but yeah in basketball it's like multiple steps and you want to be in a stable spot at each step, right? Or otherwise, either the team does poorly or you get fired or or whatever. So, right. So. Well, the misconception about you is that you're just purely a numbers guy because the actual way to describe what you did for the Rockets these last 12 years is how do I get somebody who can be one of the best three guys on a championship team? Or get that, really, really close to the title, but not do it. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about that because this is a 13-year odyssey that leads to this series against the Warriors in 2018, where if you play that series 10 times, I think you win six. Six or seven, yeah. Um, and there's a whole bunch of things that went on in that series that we're going to talk about to be later. Fair, I'd say seven, but I think, you know, if you went to Vegas, they'd say more like six. Like yeah. You said, well, because yeah. so the, there's two things that happen in that series. And we'll cover it in detail later at this podcast. But Andre Goodall goes down in game three. And that really hurt them defensively. It was and a- I, people forget that part. But then everyone remembers the Chris Paul part. And that's one of the reasons I wanted this podcast is because as as the years pass, people remember certain things. And they forget other things. I, in my opinion, the Andre thing was 70 to 75% as big as the Chris Paul thing. The difference is Chris Paul is your second best player. He's game four, fourth or fifth best player. <laughs> right. And game yeah. four, game five, you win two close games. Defensively, you're at another level. Nobody had done that to that Warriors team before. And you leave game five thinking, we did it. Like, we, we right, actually are going to win two. this. Exactly. One yeah. problem Chris Paul's holding is like. Yes. Yeah, ex- exactly. And, you know, uh, Steve Kerr took some heat for, like, talking about Iguodala being out. But he was right. I yeah. Mean, Iguodala – was so so good for them in that series uh, that year he was actually a very key player against us in particular which i think is why why steve talked about it and and you know obviously we were like well you know boohoo you know you have four all-star level guys plus you know five if you count Iguodala, even though he's older and and that's true but like Iguodala is a very important player in beating us at the time so and allowed them to do a whole bunch of different things defensively and even in game five Quinn Cook takes probably one of the three biggest shots in that game with 44 seconds left. He's a rookie. He's in there because Iguodala can't play and misses a wide open three. But all right, going backwards. Yeah, sorry. Um, We're talking about a 12 year odyssey here. You're already getting bummed out. We're talking about the 18th series. (laughs) I I did rewatch it as part of my my interlocutor here told me I had to watch that game again. I I appreciate the hard work. I know. (laughs) So. 
You take over the Rockets in 06. In 09, I wrote a column about the Sloan Conference, which you had been heavily involved in since what year? Well, 2006 was the first year uh, I had done a class at MIT from 04 to 06. So So I think I started going the second year, and it was still in the MIT classrooms. And then I think 09. the first year, to give you credit. Did I go the first year? Yeah, because the only one year in MIT classrooms. Oh, so so I I was there that year. I had to have you there. Yeah, that was great. I think I flew back for it. As you said in that column, because you had me read your 09 column, you do have an inner geek. You you hide it. Oh, yeah. But uh, Well, I I was really conflicted for the mainstream media the public, they cared about the stats more for how to compare players against each other because that's what was working in baseball. And in for baseball, or yeah. Whatever. yeah. And in baseball, it's like, yeah, these stats are actually cool. Like we have war and and it's like we were picking the wrong players to win the MVP and the Cy Young over and over again and not understand the value. And you could do it because it's individual players. Nobody else is affecting their production. I just hated that in basketball people weren't accounting for the effect players had on other teammates. And I remember somebody wrote a piece about just killing Allen Iverson's MVP season. I think it was David Barry. Mm-hmm. And he's like, whatever formula he came up with, he's like, he was actually the 150th most valuable yeah, that player that year. That and right. it's like, all right, are we get, are we really going to do this? Because <laughs> Iverson single-handedly carried the Sixers to the to finals the that finals, year. That yeah. This is ridiculous. Like, yeah. But on the other hand, I knew there was stuff going on. I knew from you, and you were target, targeting different guys. And well, I wasn't totally understanding and seeing what you're doing, but I knew you were up to something. And I think a lot of the people in the league did too. Well, the key difference between baseball and basketball is, and, and where folks like who attacked Allen Iverson were off, uh, although this has all been fixed mostly, even publicly now, is that if you looked at what made a team win in baseball – you know, hitting home runs, you know, power, getting on base, things like that. Um, and you applied those things that made a team win to a player, it actually worked. You could generally say, look, if this player did the thing that we know helps the team win, that means that player is good. So in basketball, that's not true. And you, and you knew it intuitively because I know you were watching Celtics games since you were like three years old. And I played. And you played. And, and uh, you know, so the the assuming that what makes a team win – you know, getting rebounding and all that, you can directly apply to a player is wrong because, you know, the simplest example is is rebounding. I'll take Nene, for example. He's one of the best rebounders at the team level because he boxes out, he takes up space, all these things. So the team will get the rebound, but he doesn't get as many. So if you look at all those all those individual metrics, Nene might not look as good. But if you look at him in terms of his team impact, it's it's quite good and it's very consistently good. So our data is much harder to work with in baseball. So in that 2009 column I wrote about the Sun Conference, which I dubbed Dorkapalooza, which I think is still it's, held, it's right? Stuck. Yeah, it's yeah held. It's Thank ten, you, 10 years. Thank you, yes. I wrote... Uh, and I'm writing about how I know there's more with these stats. So I wrote, after watching Anderson Vergeau throttle the clips with his low post D recently, I emailed Daryl wondering why there wasn't a stat called stops for when a defender prevents his opponent from scoring on an isolation play or a low post or perimeter play. And I'm just thinking at the time, they, why don't they have this stat? They right. should have this. And I said, if you come up with an unforced turnover in the process, it's a super stop. Daryl's response why do you think we have Chuck Hayes? <laughs> exactly. In other words, we are year, years ahead of you on this one, Simmons. So I knew there were all these numbers, and you knew it, 
And what did you have? Like about a four-year advantage where there's only a couple teams operating in this space and you're just cherry picking all the best info? Yeah, absolutely. And at that time, like a lot of the defenders were undervalued because they were harder to see. So guys like Chuck Hayes, guys like Shane Battier, uh, guys like even Dikembe Mutombo at age 40, whatever. Yeah. I mean, people forget he was like actually the linchpin to our 22-game winning streak when, right. when Yao Ming went down. Um, in terms of your super stop thing, Leon Poe was actually extremely good at that. If, right. you, if you remember, uh, he had to you know, rest his soul because he got injured like in year three of his career or something. Well, so. also basketball was different back then. And you could really see it in that stretch from like – 98 to 2004 where it's just everybody's offense was just iso post up mm -hmm. and dump the ball down and you you know if you had somebody like chuck hayes who now i don't think would be as important as he, he was in the 2000s point, yeah. but specialists like chuck um i think are extremely hard to play now because like if you don't put five threats on the floor on offense, it yeah. can become very easy to guard now, and you have to be able to score now. Like you, yeah, I, I love where the league's going. Like you have to, like the offenses have gotten better, and you, if you put a non-threat on offense, like it just becomes way easier to guard you in the playoffs. So. Well, the 2019 Raptors were weirdly the Daryl Morey ideal team. Well, you got to give side credit. He crushed it. That's that, what I mean. Amazing, but think right? about how they constructed that team. You totally would have made the Kawhi trade. You would be like, oh, I get him for a year? Great. He's one of the best five players in the league. I'm doing that. They had a bunch of offensive players on the floor who could all create their own shot. They had consistent. They had their top seven, everybody could at least make a wide open three or if, a, if late in the shot clock. And they had, our minor, they had our minor league coach from the Vipers, Nick Nurse, who uh, you know, oh, that's right. was a new coach that year. So they that had Kyle good. Lowry, who you, you traded for famously last decade. And I, I, if you remember, I emailed you immediately. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? How'd you get Kyle Lowry? You traded uh, Rafer Austin for him? I know. that was That's still my favorite trade ever because was, Rafer was our starting point guard. Yeah, loved, everybody loved went nuts. by the coaching staff, and we traded for the third string. He wasn't even the backup on Memphis. And and we got him, and then uh, you know Aaron Brooks and him carried us the rest of that year. But to talk about Toronto, I mean, that, I love that they won. It's great for basketball. I mean, Masai has been crushing draft picks year after year. He's, I mean, he's you know, I, I obviously I'm very jealous. He's got one of those rings. That, that was I, kind of the culmination of where basketball was going this decade. A team like that, I feel like, where you know, just a traditional. I'd like to he's think there I, for one year. Teeny tiny amount of credit, not in the way you think, and that's because we wore the hell out of the Warriors, our series. Like they're Yeah, you did. They came into our series. I, I went back and looked, and Durant was averaging forty-five minutes a game before us and you know, in this year's playoffs. Um so he, you know, we they put everything against the ball to beat us, and they did it. Credit to them. And then, you know, I hope we uh you know, for Toronto's sake, we helped them run out of a little gas at the end. So I wrote in 2009, one thing we all agreed on was that the basketball revolution will be much rockier than baseballs. It's not as simple as embracing whip and OPS or creating watershed easy to prove stats like VORP and Pakoda. We need to properly evaluate what we're seeing before we can process these evaluations to build a new infrastructure. NBA teams won't help. They release data only when it suits them like when Mark Cuban's blog unveiled Dallas's kooky player performance formula, which just so happened to justify the Mavs' roundly criticized kid trade. You felt like the information was private to the teams for a while. What happened? How did it start to get out? 
Yeah, there's a lot of people to blame there. Uh, yeah, was, let's talk about it. <laughs> I, I, we, we for a while were just hiring anyone, anyone who wrote anything good. We were hiring to try and keep it out of the public domain, and a lot of those folks are still, still with us. But uh, actually, uh, you know, I blame Philly when they when they wiped out uh, Sam Hinkie's regime. Several of the you know Ben Falk went and wrote it, did his site. That's an extremely good site. Yeah, a lot of this, a lot of this data is available. And I love you and I've talked about this. Before. I love the basketball is very contextual. It's there's still so much art to how you build a team. Uh, there's not one way to play. Um, and I think that's finally coming to baseball. Not to mention my Jeff Lunau conversation again. They they're doing what we've been doing for a while, which is like look for players who will do better when they're in our structure, right? In baseball, that's there's not a ton of that. But what what the Astros have found is like, hey, we get these pitchers and we just tell them to stop doing the stuff that doesn't work. Like it seems very basic, but no one was doing it before, as far as I can tell. And we do the same thing. We say, let's go get these players uh, in our offense and our defense. Um, they will they will be enhanced, and mostly because we're going to have them do more of what they're good at and less of what they're not good at. I think the Spurs were the first team that I remember really concentrating on that. And you and not all the signings worked, right? But when you think about when they got Rashan Asterovich, mm-hmm. they part of the reason they got him was like we've studied this, we've Roberto. looked at this. Yeah, we have cap space. This is the type of center who will succeed next to Tim Duncan. And they go and they get Brent Barry. This is the type of player with Tony and Manu and Duncan. He can shoot threes. If the shot clock's going down, he might be able to create something. And over and over again, they were finding guys like that. I think the one miss they had was Richard Jefferson, who I would have thought would have worked in their system, and he just didn't. Marcus Williams and... Well, um, yeah, he wasn't going to work in anyone's system. There's a few minor ones, but overall... Jefferson was the big the big miss. Yeah, they've, they've crushed, <laughs> as usual, the Spurs have the best record for, you know... Any period, twenty years, so, yeah, yeah, twenty years. Uh, my time with the Rockets were second, their first. But they're they're basketball geniuses in different ways. Like uh, I still think their work with Kawhi is the greatest development project in the history of basketball. And wow. then, you know, he came out of college, obviously being an extremely good defender, uh, extremely good rebounder. Uh, but his development on his ball handling and shooting was just, you know, and credit to Kawhi mostly, but off the charts, really, really off the charts. So, um, the biggest amazing. mistake you made last decade, other than something that happened at the four seasons that I saved you from, was, <laughs> was, uh, <True> story. <laughs> you give Michael Lewis access to your brain and what? he ends up writing this awesome piece about why Shane Batty is an important basketball player. And how you're looking at him. The New York Times article. New York Times magazine. 2009, that actually was, yeah. And you have this nice little setup, and people know you're a numbers guy, but they don't understand how much thought you're putting in everything. And that piece came out, and I remember I either emailed or called you, and I was like, you fucked up. You you let people under the hood of the car. And now now they're going to be looking at this going, wait, and every owner is going to be reading this going, wait a second, what's this? And emailing his front office and the fucking wheels came off. And we're pretty good about that. I actually was really happy because your former colleague, Zach Lowe, yesterday was talking to David Epstein. And yeah. David was like asking me questions on like how to use some physical attributes to forecast in the draft. And he was literally right on stuff that I think is really helpful to us. And I told him, yeah, no, can't help you. And <laughs> right. he talked about it on the pod yesterday, so I was happy. <laughs> That's good. You've um, learned your lesson. Yeah, we we you always have a 
challenge. Like most of our stuff in basketball, you see on the floor. So it's not like it's all that secret. There's probably a couple things in there that weren't the best for us, but we're pretty good about not not releasing stuff that's really really hurting us. People last decade, they're judging players at least partly by would they be a good fantasy basketball player? Or, well, that's somebody that can't create his own shot, so he must not be that good. And Battier was the kind of glue guy that just ends up being on every championship team. But we didn't have a way to value that. But now I think as as these last 12 years have gone along, you see what like Trevor Reza did in 2009 for the Lakers. Or us. And or, yeah, or for you. Um, you see the stuff Iguodala did, the legend of Robert Horry, James Posey in uh, 2008 for the Celtics. And you just go down the line. It's like these guys are just on teams. Richard Jefferson in 2016, basically on his last legs for Cleveland. Right. Over and over again, there's a guy like that on these championship teams. And now I think guys, I think teams deliberately target looking for those guys. Well, Michael was fascinated with Shane Battier. So it was, you know, that article, I think it was going to happen either way. Actually, yeah. But uh, but you're right. Yeah, I think it's, it's a challenge. We try to keep out anything that's going to, create an edge for someone else but that was i mean that's michael lewis's whole career he was two years ahead of an angle that was sitting there in plain sight and even for somebody like me and i I was writing a ton back then and i'd never thought to write a piece about baddie that way you know and i read i was like god damn it michael lewis he he Uh, is the best storyteller i think out there i'm obviously biased but i mean he's he's finds all these all these trends early, which is pretty impressive. So I wrote in that 2009 piece, I demand the minutia. I know <laughs> the team is hiding. Mega assist. Russell's, that was when you block the ball but keep it in bounce. St- stops and stupor- was mega super assist stop. Was mega assist a pass to like a dunk? Yeah, layup or dunk. Three? Yeah, yeah, you're creating yeah. You a You know shot. who was amazing at those? Jeremy Lin. Was like one really? of the best. Yeah. He would do these pass aheads that would almost always lead the dunks, and his passes were always highly efficient. Now, some of that was our structure either where he might coach them in new york or yeah or in uh well he never coached them here but our system was similar so nba teams need to stop acting like they're protecting nuclear <laughs> info during the cold war aren't we in this together you just told me i have to protect everything like it's no the i know cold but, war, it, so. but the info's out now right oh now now we can do everything oh yeah yeah most of it's out uh i would say you still have like some health and th- there's uh, Player performance stuff that I think teams is individual. There's still data stuff, and there's still a lot of really bad public domain stuff that I think other teams use, which I like. So, <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> so I like that. Yeah. Let's take a break to talk about the Google Assistant. It's ready to help you get more done with just your voice in the car, at home, and everywhere you take your phone. The Assistant has been very helpful when recording this book of basketball podcast series. Very few people on the earth have seen more professional basketball games in person, that my father, a season ticket holder of the Celtics for almost 50 years, when I want to ask him about a player saw in person before I was able to join him, I can just say, hey, Google, call dad. A little help hands-free. Just say, hey, Google, to get started. Meanwhile, getting tickets online could be far too complicated. Hundreds of sites, varying levels of reliability. It's hard to know who to trust. That's why SeatGeek is the way to go. They pull millions of tickets in one place so you can easily find the seats you want for a price you're willing to pay. There's nothing quite like being there in person. SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. It's designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever by searching multiple ticket sites and grading every ticket based on value. SeatGeek helps you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase fully guaranteed 
Make SeatGeek your go-to ticket source for everything from sports, concerts, comedy, theater, you name it. I have the app on my phone. It's my favorite and easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. I recently used it last week to get tickets to the Celtics Clippers game right next to the Celtics bench. My son, it was like he was the 13th man on the team. It was incredible. So easy to figure out which tickets to get to. Best of all, my listeners get $10 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code Simmons today. Promo code Simmons, $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek, life's an event. We have the tickets. One of the things you told me is you needed, as long as there were six or seven teams in the league that were doing things incorrectly, it was good for the teams that were doing things correctly. 28 would be better, but yeah. Um, <laughs> but now yeah. that number seems to be dropping. You know, I I thought it was dropping, and then it's like bumped up again recently. It feels like. <laughs> I, mean, I I just think there's still, still and, and, and the reality is like it, it's – it's tough, like to have to have an infrastructure. You know, it's like any public companies go bad when like the main leader uh, goes away. Like I think that happens uh, with professional teams as well, where their top people go. Like sometimes the new regime is not great. So. One of my favorite things about you running a team is when you get jealous of other people's scenarios. Like when Hinky went to Philly, and you understood what he was actually being tasked to do. You were like, that is amazing. No, I just, because you would always talked about if I was ever going to bottom out, I'm bottoming out. <laughs> like there's, there's going to be, you think it's a rock bottom. It's an abyss. And he actually did it. He did. It. And the thing that amazed me is that people actually cared how bad the abyss was. So I, he got t so much feedback, like, which was like, look, it's okay to be bad. We get the strategy, but don't be, historically bad and i'm like why does it matter if you're historically bad but i, I mean, gave him some of that shit because, just yeah. because it was like a, a bummer to watch yeah they yeah. they weren't even trying to be competitive so at that point it's like well maybe the fans should get half price tickets or yeah something I, like that that, that, that was know? a that was a fair point but that's more of a structural thing it's still it's still a problem the league hands like the best asset to the worst team yeah. um you know it just leads to and i saw mike greenberg just had a whole rant in baseball there's like seven teams that are just like as the worst seven teams ever at the same time, something like that. So, yeah. so that's more of a structural problem. They, they should be, and Commissioner Silver's trying to do that with different tournaments and things like that to make it that there's some advantage to still being good, even if you're not one of the top teams. I want to talk about your team building errors because I think the concept of team building, you've been an important proxy. You come to the Rockets in 06. And they have Yao and T-Mac. During kind of a talent semi-abyss where there weren't as many superstars as there are now. And if you had two superstars, you should be in the mix for a title. Right. And you had two guys that they were a little bit of a weird fit, but not totally. You'd like T-Mac could create, right? You could run the whole offense through him. But then you also, Yao in the low block, it was kind of tied to what the old school way of basketball was. In um, retrospect, it was a more awkward fit than than yeah. people realized. Uh, it was, I didn't it was, feel that way at the time, though. But now I, I, did now I feel that when way. When I first came to the Rockets, I I thought it was great. But it, on offense, it was an awkward fit. It was a tough fit. And and now that we have, you know, basically an even better version of T Mac and James Harden, you see, like if you have, 
you know, the big just gets in the way. Right. And, He's and Yao Ming was very big. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and Tracy, to his credit, was saying these things back then. There wasn't really anything we'd done. And obviously, Yao was a devastating offensive force. It just was a harder offensive fit than people, people realize. Uh, you know, Rick Adelman talked about it. And I think Sam Hinkie actually said it best. Like, it was just so hard to get Yao Ming the ball. It was like hitting the 100 in the ski. Like, like that, that's a big reason we got Shane Badia. He was actually one of the best post-entry guys. It wasn't yeah. a big reason. It was a, it was a reason. And So that he, was a stat back then you were probably looking at, that too, was right? when best we had. He was passes. one of the better entry pass guys, yeah. and that was part of the decision to get him. And he turned out to be our best entry pass guy, but, but even he was like, it's so hard to get Yao Ming the ball. If he get fronted by an athletic guy, it was it was almost impossible to get him the ball, and that neutralized him on offense. So it was a, it was a tough fit back then. Well, and then the other problem for Yao Ming was that the the China was just playing him in every single tournament. He's playing twelve months a year. He's seven foot six, and he was playing a lot. Only a lot. so many miles in a body anyway. In the NBA, no too, to be fair. Yeah he, yeah, he played a lot both ways. He was obviously one of our best players, so he played a lot. So, yeah, it was it was definitely – I would have definitely would have done things differently if I teleported back then, you know. But oh, you would So if, if you knew then what you know now, he's playing 60-game seasons, 29 minutes a game during the regular season, you're saving him. I think you have to, although, you know, the West was tough at the time. I mean, it was, to your point on parity, the, in the middle of that 22-game winning streak, we went from the ninth seed uh, just to the one seed. We won 22 games in a row and literally just barely moved up because all the other West teams were winning. Yeah, that was the era where the Warriors won 48 games that year to make the playoffs. I believe that's way, right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you have, you take over, Yao, you have Yao McGrady, you trade... A lottery pick for Battier, which people were confused by and was not a popular move at including all. Including the yeah, including the owner of the team. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and to be fair, like that's not a straightforward trade, right? Right. You know, there's a lot of upside, in, you know, in that pick that you're cutting off. Uh, but was the I, eighth pick in the draft? It was the eighth pick in the draft. Yeah. And Rudy Gay had kind of dropped to eight. Well, and he people was were supposed surprised to be a he top, was there. Top yeah. two or three pick. Yeah. So. And then all the fans were excited, and then we trade him for Shane, who's averaging eight points and four rebounds or whatever. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was definitely a, an interesting time. So, yeah. what? How do you convince your owner when nobody understands information like the information you had at the time? I remember, you have to trust me. We have to do this. This I, is a good trade. I remember the meeting. I remember saying, "Look." You, the reason you brought me here is for stuff like this. Like, if we don't do something like this, then then it's you know, why, why are we here? <laughs> so yeah. I remember making that impassioned plea and, and to, to Leslie's credit, he, you know, he was on board. I when believe. did he buy in officially with you? How many years? <laughs> like when did he just, I, you know, he was a very smart you? man and, and he never bought into anything. He was always questioning, always, always asking questions, always coming up with ideas even. So did he ever veto a trade? Oh uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. For what sure. trade? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, like every owner, every owner's vetoed a trade, including David Stern, as you know. <laughs> and, oh yeah. Uh, and and uh, it happens. It, it it happens. And you know, a lot of times it works out works out well. Wick definitely vetoed some trades that would have been bad for the Celtics. So. Here's the thing: they own the team. 
ultimately they're not going to do something that they intensely dislike. Nor you can talk to them into something they're conflicted about, but if they yeah. dislike it, it's probably not happening. Yeah, I mean, like Bill, if 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 Ringer goes to two billion and you buy a and you buy a team, are you going to hire someone and be like, ah, just just do whatever you want? I'm not no. going to be involved at all. No, I'll be meddling left and right. <laughs> so. As you should, actually. You had a couple good draft picks that first. So the, I'm calling this the Yamagrade era. You do the bad A trade. You draft Aaron Brooks and Carl Landry. Bring what are you score. seeing? What do you, What was the 2006, 7, 8 inefficiency for the draft at that point? College production, right? Yeah, older college players were definitely overlooked. And the Spurs were on it, too. Um I still think that's that's an area of opportunity, which is guys who are extremely good players in college, and you bring them in, and you you know they're probably not going to be a superstar, but you get them for on a good value uh, late in the draft. Um, so you, then you you trade for Ron Artest three years yes. after the melee. You missed trading for Scola, but that was right right in there. I don't know where that that, that was oh, right I there. I don't. I thought you had Scola. Would no, you no. trade for Scola? We traded Spanulis for Scola. Oh, that was a hijacking. Yeah. So. Um, you trade for Ron Artest. Yes. And you signed Brett Barry. Yes. That was until 2018. That was our best team. Yeah. Oh, nine, like, you take the Lakers to seven without Yao or Tracy. Right. Yeah. Both Yao and Tracy were gone and Dikembe. All three were out by the time we played the Lakers and we took them to seven and no other team took them to seven that year. They beat Orlando and Yao got hurt during that series, right? No, what was the game? I went to the game with you. Oh, the yeah, sorry, game. He sorry, got sorry. Hurt at the start I'm of that my, series. He got hurt in game two. Yeah, sorry. We went to that right. game together. That's right. Dikembe. I went watched out. all the blood leave your body. Exactly. Dikembe went out the round before against Portland, uh, and Tracy was out, was out the whole the whole thing. The so. yeah thing was actually a, a good kind of thing for what that Lakers team was at the time because they were so big and overpowering, and you were like. Yeah, hey, our guy's seven foot six. You're <laughs> you're not overpowering this. Yao always did really well against the guys who normally dominate physically. So he did well against Shaq. Yeah, he did well against Powell. Uh, he did well against these guys who he could dominate more. They just weren't used to a guy bigger than him. So those were great mashups. He always did poorly against guys. Shockingly, he did bad against guys like Stromile Swift, who could front him six nine, athletic, keep him from getting the ball. Um, he always struggled against athletic, smaller guys. The real bad luck with that whole stretch was McGrady. McGrady, because you think about he comes in the league in '97 as a high schooler. He's year year ten in 2007. You're, you know, he's he's in the range where he should have really been peaking, and you kind of didn't get those last three years with him. You should have gotten. That's right, and you know, because you were. Obviously, a very active sports writer at that time. Like there were oh. lots of think pieces. Yeah, that McGrady was better than Kobe for like a three-year stretch, basically. Maybe even you. I'm not sure, but I thought his, I thought his ceiling was a tiny bit higher. I thought I just thought it was his easier was for him. A lot higher. Yeah, I thought he's it was way bigger. Um, all those things. So. Yeah, because he could play three positions, and I just thought it was his points came a little easier. Kobe's was always like a heat check or just a lot of thought and care put into it. And Tracy was just like, I'm just going to score 13 points in a row right now. He's just so good. He was, uh, he was unreal. Now, he's a classic born two years too early guy. Because I think if he's in this decade, oh my he's God. James Harden. Yeah, he's he's that level. And you would have known not to clog the paint with him. 
Yes, and Tracy will love hearing that if he listens to this. Hopefully, he will because like he he to his credit, he was saying it throughout. Like and and we were like, hey, this is what we got, right? <laughs> you know, so. but you probably would have played four, right? Oh, just this left yumming down at the other. No, I'm end. saying like he, <laughs> like you would have played a small ball lineup. He would have been the four. Oh yeah, for sure. And we did. And you actually. would have had like a we Capella did. as the five, and yeah. you would have surrounded him with shooters, and basically then we did James Harden. Yeah, for absolutely. Yeah. So you get. The other one you did was you traded Austin for Lowry, which we covered. You signed Ariza, and you had this nice little run. But then McGrady gets hurt. Now you're not a superstar anywhere. You lose. Now you're superstarless. Yes, that was some dark days. Yeah, which wandering the, through the wilderness. I wrote the no man's land era. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's exactly where you're right. just you have a lot of non top ten picks. You're drafting Patrick Patterson, Marcus Morris, Sam Hinkie, Jeremy Lamb to tank. He's telling us we got a tank. Oh, was he really? Oh yeah, yeah. He, it probably was the right strategy. So. Terrence, Terrence Jones, Royce White. Terrence Jones is back, man. He's uh, he's on on a roster right yeah, now. You can't give you can't quit Terrence Jones. No, I love Terrence Jones. You're doing. You're making more trades over a three-year span than like everyone in the league combined. I'm just going to rip through these quick. You trade T-Mac for cap space and a future first. And you Jordan Hill. And Jordan Hill. You trade Ariza for Courtney Lee. You sign Brad Miller. You trade Brooks for Dragic in a first. That was a great trade, actually. You trade Battier for a 2013 first. You trade, you sign Brad Miller and then a couple years later trade him with the rights to Meritage for Monty Yunus and Johnny Flynn. I told you not to go near Johnny Flynn. You have a veto... <laughs> trade that would have landed you Pau Gasol just for like a bunch of draft picks, right? Who's no, it was in that? Martin and Scola for Gasol. Oh, as far, but that was a fortuitous vetoing. Actually, Dragic, Martin and Scola for, for Gasol. I don't think it was for, people say that. I agree it would have been maybe more complex. Well, you needed to, Kevin Martin for that Harden trade. It would have been more complex to pull off the Harden trade. But the, the point I always make is like, Pau was a very valuable player at the time. Like we could have, traded Powell for a wing and then still completed a deal with OKC. So True. Okay. So then 2012, you trade Jordan Hill for Fisher's contract in a first. You trade Buttinger for a first. You trade Lowry for a The first against James Harden. Yeah. It was a lottery. It was a guaranteed lottery first. Correct. First one of those, yeah. And you have cap space again. And at this point, I'm thinking like Daryl might be losing his mind because you. <laughs> I think you, you wrote that I was about to get fired. I, I, yeah. I was worried, yeah, because you had yeah. kind of gone all in, but none of the draft picks worked out. Correct. Yeah. You correct. do two poison pill contracts for Omer Ashik, Ash yes, and Jeremy Lin, yeah. where you took advantage of this weird role where you could stack the contract, and you have this team of just a lot of non-top ten picks. Ashik, Jeremy Lin, lots of firsts. We built lots up. of firsts, and it's like you. You're just poised to do something, but there's no trade to make. And everybody is going, what the fuck is Daryl doing? <laughs> and we and were I'm trying to make trades. We were trying yeah, to make, and I'm yeah. getting texts from people like, what the fuck is Daryl doing? And I'm like, <laughs> he's building this. He wants to make a super trade, but there's no trade. Right. And they're like, well, he better make it soon. <laughs> it was a lot it's of accurate, that. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, October 2012, the James Harden situation falls into your lap. Falls into our lap. That's, that's a tough way to frame it. Let me rephrase. <laughs> you pull off an incredible James Harden trade. I prefer when you say it that way. That's funny. No, I mean, what's going on is they don't want to pay the luxury tax and they're eyeballing each other and they're at a contract impasse. And at some point they start kind of putting out the stealth word to a couple of teams. Hey, what's out there for Harden? 
and you're just sitting in your bunker in your Dr. Evil compound with your Starbucks <laughs> and number two, and Frau Fabrisna, and you're like, James Harden, he's available? What? And you get it done. And people that focus on, decade. People like you focus on OKC's part in this, but the I think the biggest part of this is the other teams who didn't trade for him. Like we had we had what we had to trade. You saw what we traded. And it was, you know, a lot of stuff. They got Steven Adams. They got but other So you had a future lottery pick that had a chance if Toronto sucked to be a top five pick. Correct. You had and, Kevin Martin. And became who was, Steven Adams, who was probably worth a top five pick, to be fair. You so. had Ke Although Giannis was next pick. You had Kevin Kevin Martin, who was still an 18-point-a-game scorer. Mm -hmm. And who was the other guy? In the, oh, and, and Jeremy Lamb, who people liked. Lamb is very solid player. But if so. Washington says, we'll give up Bradley Beal, they have James Harden. Yeah, I don't want to say the team, but there are several teams that I think could have easily outbid us. Easily. I just said one of them. Yeah, you can say all of them. You get James Harden. Now you're in the Harden era. That's definitely the era we're still in. One sneaky, well, this is part one of the hard era. Yeah. You do a little sneaky Pat Beverly signing during the season. Um, you don't really have it that first year. You didn't have the right team for him. But that summer, create the cap space. You signed Dwight Howard. Yes. And you're telling me. Which unquestionably worked. Everyone says it didn't. but No, it 100% worked. Yeah. But you're telling me that summer, like, we think we have a chance to get a second superstar. NBA players love Houston. I'm like, why do they love Houston? He was like, they just love living here. You get a huge house. There's no state tax, and they love the food. They do I'm like, really? It's that simple? And you're like, yes. <laughs> you you painted it very very clearly. Yeah. There's they some other factors that you and Jalen always talk about, but yeah. Yeah, but that's true. There's some other some Jalen Rose factors. Yes, but yeah. It's really that simple. So you get Dwight Howard, and now you have this little three year run, where, um, two year run really, and then the third year was tough. That's fair. Two-year yeah. run with a horrible third year. With a tough third year, yeah. A um, couple other moves. You drafted Clint Capella. What would you see in him? Clint was just someone we were really high on. Shocked he was there at 25. Probably should have moved up for him. Uh, just thought he was the perfect fit for our screen roll, rim dive. So at dunk. that point, you're drafting based on, oh, I could get screen roll guys here. Well, generally in the draft, we're just going for whoever the best guy is because, honestly, they – I think there's only like 15 rookies who are even good in the first year in the NBA when you actually measure it. So we we generally don't worry about how they're going to be early. So. Well, would you tell me like after it's like after the 10th pick, it's a 10% chance the guy's going to be a starter or something like that, or after like the 12th pick? To be, yeah, a significant starter, I would say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so Clint, yes, yeah, so, you know, we had Dwight Howard. A lot of people were like, why are they getting this guy Clint when we have Dwight? But, you know, you're, we're always – Planning just best player at that point. So you're doing a whole bunch of trying to find the right guys around Harden and Howard. You trade Ashik for a reason at first. You trade Dump Lynn in a first to create cap space. You signed Josh Smith. Well, that was tough because that, that trade was like two hours before we were supposed to get Chris Bosch. So I thought we were going to have James, Dwight, and Bosch. And I thought that that could have been our best team. So ever. you did the trade dump because you were creating this space because you thought you had Chris Bosch. Yeah, basically, if we had waited till Chris fully signed on the dotted line, uh, which to be fair to Chris, he had not a hundred percent agree. He just said, "Look, it's looking very good." Um, if we had waited until he said fully he's in, then we would have had to. We would have been held up. They would have known we had to create this space, and we would have had to trade a lot more to create the space. So I pulled the trigger early. 
moving Jeremy because I had like 90% odds Bosch was coming a couple hours later. So premature, premature trade relation. <laughs> exactly. And credit Miami, they, you know, they had told, I, um, from my understanding, they had told Chris all along they weren't going to give him this contract. And then at the last minute, they gave him everything. So, yeah. So, well, Harden and Howard and Chris Bosch would have been a nice team. Yeah. I've had most, did. most people who are smart think that team would have been the best team for sure at that time because Golden State wasn't quite Golden State at that point. The mentality during this part of the decade was get three guys created by Miami. You can't win the title unless you have three guys. San Antonio had Duncan, Parker, Ginobili, and then Kawhi moving in there. Correct. Um, Miami had Bosh, Wade, and LeBron, so on and so on. Boston, KG, Ray, and Pierce. It's still um, a good formula having three all stars. Yeah, so well now I'll take as many as I can get. <laughs> it's shifted a little bit now because I think people are looking at two and role players seems to be the new model. I you don't I agree. think it's just because you know they haven't had it. I I, I would take four all stars. I'll take it. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. I mean, we just you know we have two, so it's pretty good. So you you get the all time crazy comeback game against the Clippers, which both of us attended, yes. where your season basically looks like it's over. Harden comes out of the game. He's in a total funk. And then the bench comes back in, and the Clippers just completely fall apart. The crowd gets nervous. It's just one of those games. You end up winning that series in seven. And are you starting to believe now? Because Dwight Howard was playing really well that playoffs. He yeah. he looked like 2009 Dwight Howard. Dwight, to his credit, was always amazing in the playoffs. I mean, he he... You know, maybe regular season you can quibble with things, but like in the playoffs, he brought it. I mean, he he was really good at the t- those two years. So, what is the mentality of the team building at this point? Because you're starting to shoot more threes, and you're thinking about this whole model that manifested itself a few years later of the one creator, which you had with T Mac the last decade. Now you have Harden, the one rebounds, blocks. Mm-hmm. Kind defensive of defensive anchor, yeah, one person, screen and then, roll center, yeah, and then kind of shooters, wing dudes, yeah, long. It's not much different than what you have now. No, I mean, I think you know, it's it works, right? <laughs> so, but did you did you knew did you think it was gonna work, or did you realize it was working and then realize this was the model? I think it was. Well, some of it's like you try and get your star players, and then you sort of build around that. Um, so, I think if. You know, if you have a different type of player, you would you would do different things. But yeah, we've we've generally had the one elite offensive creator, uh, you know, in the big. And although you know now we have obviously with Chris and Russell now we've we've had you know our two best players are on the perimeter. So it's but been that's a little different. But the league changed. Yeah, the league that, for now sure you changed. don't even necessarily even need the Dwight Howard type. You don't, and and you may get to where. You know, the you don't even have a five at all. It's probably just going to get to you put your five best guys out. and Which is size. what I've always wanted. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. Now, the, the one thing where, and this is like the Lakers, because the Laker fans are like, you're this, you've always said how just play your five best guys, and now you're saying we can't play LeBron, Davis, and Kuzma at the same time. I think it's tough if you're putting out all power forwards at the same time, but I do like the concept of here are our best five guys. And this is where we ended up with eventually – with the uh, 2018 Rockets. So you have Dwight, really unhappy with Dwight. You signed, you traded for Ty Lawson. I told you not to do that. You didn't listen to me. Then, <laughs> then uh, 2016, huge cap space explosion. You go all in on Eric Gordon and Ryan Anderson. Um, a year later, you you trade Brewer in the first for Lou Williams. And then 
It doesn't happen in 17, although Harden has his MVP season that he doesn't actually Didn't win the get, MVP. Yeah. That's fine. You and Westbrook have worked that out. <laughs> and that all leads to the summer of 2017 where you make the another, all my assets are here in a pot. Would you like the pot <laughs> trade for Chris Paul? Yes. Yes. That Which, one was, yeah, that was, that was, that, and that was our best team. I mean, winning 65 games is no joke. I mean, we're, I think there's only, 10 teams that have won 65 or more and didn't win the title. Hey, just like basketball, the game of life is unpredictable. Some players end up in the pyramid, some don't. Talk to a State Farm agent and get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. You know who's unexpected? James Harden and Russell Westbrook ending up on the same team again this decade. That happened. We're talking to the man who pulled it off. Talk to a State Farm agent today about combining your home and auto insurance and get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected state farm. Meanwhile, if you're in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, or Indiana, well, FanDuel knows nothing brings people together like points. This Thanksgiving FanDuel Sportsbook running special promos on overbets all day. They've got a bunch of great promos to choose from. Here's my favorite double winnings on any single game overbet. You're that right. Just bet the over on any or all the Thanksgiving day games earn up to 50 bucks bonus for each one that hits. And if you're new to FanDuel, be sure to sign up with promo code BSBOOK to get your first bet risk-free. Place any bet, get refunded up to 500 bucks and site credit if you don't win. One last time, FanDuel.com slash bet the over to see the Thanksgiving Day promos. And if you're new, be sure to sign up with promo code BSBOOK to get your first bet risk-free. Must be 21 plus and present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, or Indiana. Site credit is non-withdrawable, expires seven days after receipt. Terms of restrictions apply. Gambling problem? 1-800-GAMBLER. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. Or in Indiana, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Back to the podcast. So let's talk about that 18 Rockets team because this is the manifestation of everything here. Of you're, you're running a team for 12 years at that point. 65 and 17, 112.4 points a game, 42.1 threes a game. And you made 15 and a half. Harden averaged 35 and nine. He was a 47, 37, 86 percentage guy. He averaged 10 threes and 10 free throws a game. And this is a three-year run where he did that every year. And this was something you were passionate about for years, like threes and free throws. Right. This is the biggest inefficiency going right now mm -hmm. because, and it comes out, I think Kirk Goldsberry was the one that wrote the piece for Grantland about the three is valuable even if it doesn't go in because it gets long rebounds. You didn't know that for five years. Right. Free throws are great because. Well, you set defense the other way and obviously the most efficient play. So yeah. So how long defense. were the threes and free throws? How long had you been thinking about that? and not realizing Harden was going to be on your team as the perfect manifestation of that guy. Um, I think for like, so Kevin Martin was the precursor to that. Oh. So Kevin Martin is, uh, Kmart. Yeah. So Kevin's one of the best threes and free throws guys prior to James. Right. And uh, obviously James is a whole nother level basketball player, but Kevin was like an early version of that. Yeah. Mm. So you add Chris Paul just to, to put in perspective, how different the league is at this point. Lou and, Williams is a... And he was another one, yeah, yeah, a creative. So in 2005, the Suns led the league in three-pointers per, three per game with 
The fifth team that year was the Toronto Raptors. They're at 20.5. This is only 2005, not that long ago. Right, right. 2018, you're at 42.3. The next four teams are 35.7, 33, 32.8, 32.1. And this started a shift when I was on Countdown in 2013 because the Knicks were playing this way. Mm-hmm. And they had right. kind of refashioned their with team, Woodson, yeah, yeah, with Carmelo and Jr. And they were making, they were taking almost thirty threes a game, and um, and then you look back and you think like those mid two thousands teams, like the Suns and the Mavs, are like, man, those guys took a lot of threes, and they actually really didn't. I think that would be last in the league yeah. now. I think, yeah, it's so something it's, like that. It felt like it was really starting to shift with that Knicks team. Mike and D'Antoni would Mike D'Antoni would have done it back in '05. He just said that back then it was so radical that not only was the media telling him they're shooting too many threes, was the people in the organization saying that even the players thought they were shooting too many threes. So it was like he was like on an island. And he he doesn't blame anyone, but he talks about working with Steve Kerr at the time and all of them signing off on the Shaq trade and how uh that was the the end of the the Suns, basically. And and because uh, everyone thought you needed that kind of guy to beat the Spurs, they couldn't get past the Spurs, and and uh, but that ended up being the the end of it. So. And weirdly, Grant Hill too, who was great for them, but he just became a different team because he couldn't shoot threes. So now you didn't have, you know, you and, and and Mike talks about if he had had the data back then, and probably Steve Kerr too is there, like they probably wouldn't have done that trade. So, so the league flips from I would say thirteen to where we are now where people are just jacking up threes, which leads us to this 18 Rockets team. You get Chris Paul. You get a really good Chris Paul season. 19, Amazing. five and eight. His his splits were 46, 38, 92. And I watched games four, game game five and game seven of the series, which he didn't play in game seven. But um, he's really good in games four and game. In game five, I think he scores 18 points in the second half or 20 points in the second half. But... He's just killing everybody. He's killing David West or whoever they're, whoever you're getting to switch on him. He's yeah. just destroying them. And then you had Harden coming in too, and you were able to get this yin yang thing with those two guys. Well, we were able to attack the weakest defender every um, time, which generally was we were trying to go at Curry, uh, who to his credit actually held up pretty well. But we were trying to attack him, obviously make him work, maybe get him in foul trouble, and he was probably the the easiest guy to attack on the on the floor. At the time, and on a rewatch, I rewatched it. They were giving us uh, easy switches to get that matchup, which they were doing a better job this year, this this playoffs, to keep us from going at Curry uh, this year, for example. Uh, but Chris, I, Chris, for sure, in that series, I think he knew this is it. This is our moment. This is this is my chance to win a title, and he he really showed it and. Put everything on the line and obviously got us up three two. So you have you win sixty five, Warriors win fifty eight. It's all heading toward this series and pretty pretty weak Eastern Conference that year. I mean, my beloved Celtics almost made the finals. For Kyrie, weak. it might be the weakest Eastern yeah. Conference ever. LeBron's I mean, basically by himself on the Cavs. Yeah, um, no, I think both us. Both us or the Warriors had in Vegas 90% odds to win the finals, which is actually insane. All right, so Golden State wins game one by 13. You win game two by 22. You go 16 for 42 from three. They win game three. Curry is 35. Game four and game five, it felt like you had taken control of the series. Game four, Harden and CP at 57 combined. 
PJ Tucker, 16 rebounds. You win by three. And it's a really good, it's a really good game in a really good fourth quarter. I think the Warriors are up 10, 10 minutes left. And you just shut them down. They had 12 points in the fourth quarter. They're 0 for 6 for 3, shoot 17%. You figure it out. And watching it in the moment, it just looked like you wanted it more. And the Warriors were the classic. They had won the title the year before. It was one of those classic, I will do anything it takes to win my first title kind of performances by everyone on the Rockets. And you could feel it. Yeah, and if you talk to even the Warriors who have talked since about that time or even the front office like i think they thought that like this year of course it ended uh, toronto beat them but i think they thought that that was going to be the year they lost yeah they were going to lose this series they so. get the bad break with Iguodala in game three yep um they knew how important he was and so. chris paul and curry had like definitely a big brother little brother thing because i remember from the clips warriors series which was the warriors real first taste at being in the playoffs, I think in 2014. And Chris Paul was using every trick in the book. And he does that thing, which I know I know you know, because you saw it for two years, where he just gets away with a ton of shit and he does it early and the refs don't know whether to call it or not. And they end up not calling it, which means he could just do it for the rest of the game. Super physical with Curry. And chipping him, bumping him, hacking him, and... That's how you have to do it with Curry. You just have to kind of wear him down physically, and Chris Paul figured it out. Chris, one of the all-time great competitors, really, really smart, really good competitor. How worried were you about those two guys combining forces when Chris had been a guy who, for his entire career, it's like, it's my ball, it's my team, I do everything? We didn't know exactly how it would work. We felt pretty good because they can both, uh, you know, obviously Chris could shoot. Uh, we knew he'd be off ball more, but he could defend and shoot. So we thought that would be, we thought that would work. Um, and Mike had coached both in USA basketball, so that helped. So uh, we felt it would work. It worked actually way better than we thought. Yeah. <laughs> so which was which was great. So unfortunately, well, let's talk about game five. Forty-five, forty-five at halftime. I actually have this game on my DVR, the unedited one. So I watched the halftime show. And Barkley was furious at halftime. He said it was the worst half of basketball. He killed you guys for how you played. It was a so tough. Too many threes. The whole game was a little tough, actually, on yeah. the rewatch. Like, it was a slog. Like, it, it reminded me, because I grew up really watching, like, the Cavs in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. And, and you know, basketball was could be a slog. The, the 80s Cavs were fun to watch, but by the 90s, it was just, like, beat the hell out of you, slow it down. And... Having both of us, both of us ended below 100 that game. And that's, that's like an 80 point game in the 80s because, like, the reason we're even in the 90s, we're just shooting threes. Yeah. Right. But we were missing them. They're missing them. And, you know, the key thing, a couple of things jumped out to me was I was sad because I thought, you know, I was like, that team should have won. Two is like, we, we completely shut down the Warriors, which no one, no one does. Uh, and that, that was amazing. And, Frankly, like the guy who really stood out to me was PJ Tucker. Just like he, throughout that series and in this game in particular, was if we needed a key rebound, if we needed a key stop, we needed a key anything, he seemed to be the guy that was always, always there. Yeah. yeah. Game four, he had 16 rebounds and zero points, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you had Chris Paul in the fourth quarter completely takes over. You're up four. Then you're up six with four minutes left. He has a little driving bucket. Words are hanging around. Clay gets fouled on a three, all this stuff. Gordon makes a huge three. 
Yes. Minute 21 left. You're up four. And it's amazing he made it because James tossed him that ball with like 0.8 on the clock. Which, which was and happening Eric a lot had to with like you guys. rush it. Yeah. No, it was happening a lot. Yeah, our offense was really bogged down. That's well, they like, had kind of figured it out. Yeah. And it's... Yeah. We're and gonna get to both one. Chris and James were tired. You could see it. Right. We weren't getting anything clean or easy. Neither were they, but both sides were just fighting uphill in sand, it felt like. So Draymond makes it three. You're there, you're still up one. Minute five left. This is the most important moment, basketball moment of your career, in my opinion. Harden travels. The refs fuck up the call. Yep. They decided. You actually to, think it was a travel? You don't think it was? I actually thought he traveled. I rewatched it and I thought he traveled. I thought I he did. traveled. Yeah, it it, it was one a very tough it. call for the refs because the one ref was shielded. Yeah, and he and the ball got like sort of pressed by Clay, and then he moved his feet twice. So I'm I actually think he traveled. Yeah, one other ref didn't think he traveled. Right, they decide. Two of the worst words in the NBA, the inadvertent whistle. They went inadvertent whistle, I do, yeah. Steve, now, here's Steve why this is that, important. Yeah. You're better off if they just call the travel because the next play is Chris Paul has a floater, goes in the lane, goes off his leg, pulls his hamstring. Which I didn't even see at the time because, like, play kept going. Right, it goes to the other So end. I was like, I'm like... Not like just watching them, and then I didn't even know. Like we only have four guys, and then yeah, it was pretty bad. So. All right, we're gonna come back to the universal whistle in one second. Quinn Cook misses a wide open three. Wide open. Harden misses a three. Ball out on the Rockets. Warriors now have a chance to win. Curry misses a floater. Ariza, you guys get the rebound. Ariza makes one and two free throws, so the Warriors still down two at the end. Coming out of the timeout curry throws it to green who just fumbles it and that's it and you win by four but chris paul 94 98 94 chris paul on the bench now he played 42 minutes of game four and 37 plus in game five really really hard minutes Mm -hmm. during very hard during the one round where you're playing then you're playing two days later and yeah and we we were actually our Training staff was like, hey, we're playing all our guys too much, but in particular Chris Paul, and we're like, what well, are we, we can't win. Right. <laughs> like, like, and that's that sort of happened to Warriors this year too. I mean, like to beat us, they were playing their guys huge minutes, uh, and it ended up probably hurting them down the stretch. So, I mean, the reality is like, yeah, when you got – when you're when – you're, you know, Apollo Creed versus uh, Clubber or whatever, you're going to – we were punching each other out in, yeah. in that series, so – so you have that inadvertent whistle. If the Warriors just have the ball, maybe he doesn't get hurt. Now you're down this whole rabbit hole of what ifs, which I'm sure you've been living in for the last two years. But <laughs> Jay, how often do you think about that, though? Because this, this was probably a championship team. I think about it. I think James thinks about it. I think even um, Russell's thinking. Like, we're all like, hey, this this team this year has got to be – it this year next year maybe but you don't get many chances that was my best i think before chris pulls his hamstring we're sitting on right near 50 percent title odds because we're up three two in that series one game yeah. home one game away um and the the finals is probably a walkover for either of us so yeah so it was i think it's a little under 50 when someone calculated it i i said it one other time and they were like no no, you're at 43 i was like that's close enough for me so i wrote a whole thing in 2012 about footnote titles because i don't like the word asterisk 
I think really asterisk should only yeah. be used for the 1999 Spurs because that lockout season was absolutely <laughs> absurd. You just put an asterisk on the title. But the other ones, there's been moments over the years where, you know, Isaiah sprains his ankle in game six, Pistons up 3-2 in the 88 finals, and it swings the series. And if you're a Pistons fan, you're like, we should have won the title. I'll never get over that, if, you know, if you're a Detroit fan. And there's been those over the years. I don't feel like this was in the level one footnote title, but I think it has to be in the conversation because I see a chapter in your book. Yeah, well, your, yeah. well, it'll be this podcast. I, okay, I, I there you do a footnote title podcast because <laughs> I think the Iguodala thing mitigates it a little bit because this was a really hard series and both teams lost important guys. Your guy was more important than their guy. But here's the reality. You still had a game seven at home. We did. And yeah. this live by the three, die by the three, which we had actually heard people say for years and years, and you actually died by the three. It was seven for 44 in game seven. Of course, we lived by it to game seven against right. almost being the Warriors. So we lived by it. It just got us in the end. So so can you win? Yes. You can win playing this style. <laughs> yes, for sure. If you win 65 games, you can win the title. It's, it's, that's why I always thought it was absurd. People thought the Phoenix teams couldn't win in, in the mid-2000s. Uh, you win 65 games, you can win. And more teams lose every year playing some other style than, than you know, the style we're playing. Does that make sense? So like every year, like 20 teams fail to win the title playing this other way. Um, why aren't we talking about, oh, it's impossible to win. Those guys don't win every year. So I like this. Yeah. I like I like when you get feisty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna gently push back though. I'm ready. Um I think the playoffs in the regular season They're different, yeah. I think they've become more different over these last five years than mm -hmm. really ever before because it's just hard to play a style like the way you guys played in, in 17, 18, and 19 against the same team seven times in two weeks. I think they get used to it. And I think if you look at Harden's stats in the playoffs, some of that can be attributed to fatigue and all that stuff. But also, like, I, watching games four and game five, like, they knew everything you were going to do. Correct. It was really hard for you to score. And they were loaded up. And, yeah, no, I do think the playoffs are different. The question is always, like, what what's the alternative, right? So you're pointing out reasons why maybe the way we play doesn't work quite as well as the playoffs. So let's just assume that. But it still could have worked for a title. So right. it's not, it's not exactly. the wrong way to play, but I'm saying well, that I'm would saying be like, Let's assume it's true that you're right. It's a little bit less optimal in the playoffs. What's the alternative? The alternative yeah. might still be worse than how we're playing. So right. And that, that would be what I would say, like, like we we're still playing the best style for us, even if even if maybe it you know there are reasons why it doesn't work quite as well in the playoffs. Did you feel like there was any irony in the fact that you you were tied to math to some degree with how you did this team, where you're shooting forty threes a game, and you're just maximizing all these mathematical advantages you have, but the one rub of that is you might go seven for forty four in a game seven. Yeah, I mean, everyone's maximizing their advantages, and they can often go not your way. So, I mean, we could have, if we had taken uh, um, 27 shots at 20 feet instead of 24 feet, would people be talking about it? Probably not, because, you know, it just so happened that you can carve them out from our field goal attempts because it's easy to say they were they were threes. But, you know, if we had taken two 18-footers, and by the way, we only missed 25 of them because two of them were – we were fouled on, so <laughs> so there's my most petty. Yes, <laughs> not even my data. That's the league's data, which everyone loves to talk about. That, but um, 
going forward with that with this Westbrook thing, um, the one the one reason I like this trade, but I do think he brings some unpredictability, especially in a playoff series like this, because he kind of thrives in chaos. And your team, especially playoff games, can just get chaotic. You have these 85 to 82 games where it's like what ends up swinging a game is some offensive rebound in traffic or some rebound somebody gets where they just take off and they beat everybody down the floor or, you know, sheer athleticism can some somehow can swing, swing a game. A series. And yeah, that's no, what he brings. You're 100% right. That's a huge part of why we did it is – he brings just a, an X factor of variance. And obviously we're trying to capture one side of the variance, the good side. Um, but you know, you, he's just a guy who can play at a different level. James is like that. Russell's like that. He can score in different ways in transition. He's just literally like, I remember facing OKC and I think this is true of every NBA team. The first bullet and everything is like wall up and transition because otherwise he's walking it into the hoop. Yeah. That's creating more opportunities for others. I feel very strongly that in our offense, he'll be better. Um, you know, we, we've had a good history and coach Dan Tony's had a good history of taking guys like him and using their strengths in, in new ways that, that's even better on offense. And then, um, yeah, he just... Incredible competitor. And you could argue was never really on the right team for his skill set in OKC. And look, I've been a Westbrook critic over the years just because I didn't like the teams and the the team building they did with him where it was just felt like hero ball all the time and maybe not the right dudes that should be around him. And ultimately, if you surround him with shooters, and the irony of this is James Harden is an awesome guy to have standing over here, potentially wide open, and you just spread the floor for him with real shooters, we've never 100% seen that. We've never seen that. The closest was actually when all three of them were still together. Like right, in had, 2012. They had more shooting back then. And so Ibaka that, couldn't shoot threes like he eventually could back then. So that's a big one. And people have, you know, I think had fun with, you know, obviously I've been very anti-triple-double and things like that. And 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 the reality is I was never anti-Russell Westbrook. I was anti, like, how the how the media has, you know, uses these, like, simple sort of things to decide who's the MVP versus, versus like, the guys who create the most wins and have the biggest impact, which – uh, obviously, I was always shilling for for Harden back then, and it, it was it, when 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 you write your book and when others write their book, it'll be pretty obvious. Uh, James should have won a couple a couple MVPs in this in this period. But for Harden, if he doesn't make the finals, it does become a more complicated legacy. And so I, he made he the finals. He made the finals. He didn't win. Yet. I mean, as like the, as a top three guy. Oh, I see. Yeah, right. yeah. So he was. Yeah, he was clearly behind. Uh, yeah, he was the sixth man on those yeah, teams, yeah. but. Um, but you know what I mean? Does he sense that you think? I, like he, he needs that. that piece? We all know that. Yeah, that's why we're so focused on winning. I mean, I think the the guys who don't win get thought about differently. You know, the the Barclays and the the guys like that. So, what do you Carl what, Malone? You know that kind of thing. What needs to happen to get make him more fresh in the playoffs? Um so that we don't see what happened the last couple of years. I mean, having a devastating, whirling dervish of a force in Russell Westbrook will help a lot. Like, uh, James is 
been the one who's had to probably bring the the highest energy level, uh, at least on for sure on the offensive end, consistently um, over time. And so having another guy who can take that pressure off, that's why Eric Gordon's such a key piece for us as well. Uh, is is big, and then and then we're gonna be we're gonna do more um, sort of management through the season. We're not gonna do it in like a prescriptive way, but it's gonna be we're trying to be more logical with both those guys through the season. You grew up a Cavs fan, yes, and Browns. <laughs> and the Cavs Indians. had a couple almosts, yeah, during that, that Mark Price era. Yeah, my wife my wife says that I've been scarred by growing up in Cleveland. She she grew up in Jersey and rooted for the Mets and they had that great run in eighty six. Sorry, Bill. Yeah. And and she's she's convinced I'm psychologically scarred for my Cleveland fandom because we were close. Oh, the Browns are close, the Cavs are close. The Indians were on the cover of SI that they were going to win and ended up last. You've actually like <laughs> never had a title, right, other than the 16 Cavs, but at that point they're your I enemy. Three Vipers titles, so I got like <laughs> Vipers. <laughs> I got three of those. <laughs> Where's basketball going this decade? I think it's going to continue to be amazing. I mean, I'll just be on it. Like, I just think the players coming up are great. We're clearly the best sport for a, a top young athlete to choose. Um, I'm I'm excited, you know. And I think Commissioner, I don't I don't need to show for Commissioner Silver, but they they got a lot of changes coming that I think are really interesting. So, so you think pace continues to go up? Yeah, and if it doesn't, they'll change the rules to make it go up because like it, that's been a big factor. We're a global sport; people want to watch, so it's good. Threes. Have we crested with threes, or is there a possibility for even more threes? More and more threes, probably. Really? Yeah. More? Yeah. You think yeah. we get to like 50 a game for somebody? I don't know, but the, it'll be more. Yeah. You seem so confident about this. I'm confident, yeah. 50 threes a game. I just said, I didn't say how many. I said more. Don't, don't pin me down. Do you think they have to end up eventually moving the line or getting rid of corner threes? Um, I don't have a, I think the game's very good how it is. So I, I don't have a, I don't think we need to fix anything. It's a, it's a good game. So I could see the arc cutting out the corner three, like the arc ending so that that five foot area of the corner three is no longer a three would I've, be my one. Yeah. Maybe I've heard that. five years from now. I could see them doing that. I've heard that it would hurt spacing. So it would, it would hurt, hurt the offense, not just because. Um, you know, obviously that's a good shot, but it would hurt, you know, the ability to have the floor more open. So I think that could be a negative. So last thing you and I used to argue about chemistry all the time. <laughs> and we were like Jack and Locke and lost on this <laughs> because you were like, if I put the best players in the floor, chemistry doesn't matter. And I was like, that's a great strategy, but I still think chemistry matters. And we would argue and argue and argue. Nice straw man. I don't think that's what I said. That's all right. No, but you were just like, I, there was one season where you had too many good players. Yeah. I and think I was, was 09 like, when you were just telling me how good our players were. No, it wasn't right. 09. It was like, it was later than that. Might be. Yeah. Um, and I was like, you have too many good players. They're not going to be happy. I think this was this decade. It might have been. Yeah. Might and you were been. like, that's ridiculous. You can't have too many good players. What have you learned about chemistry these last 15 years? Yeah, I, th I think the main thing is like for your top stars, 
you you just have to get them. But then yeah, you need your other players to fit to fit chemistry wise and basketball wise. So I'm pretty careful to and and our teams have had very good chemistry, you know, for quite a while since our 41 and 41 season. That 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 team didn't have good chemistry, but we've had very good chemistry teams um most of this this uh this period and yeah so any player who's not a star we're, I'm 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 working hard to make sure as long as our team is good enough to to fit together better so how many nerds have come up to you in the last 12 years and asked how they could get into sports like a hundred thousand <laughs> a lot hundred and fifty thousand yeah. a lot a lot it's a good thing that's how we get good people so what do you look for when you're hiring at, the, at this point I look for different I, backgrounds. Yeah, we look for different backgrounds. When I like the like the super forecasting stuff. If you read that book by Tetlock, there's there's a, just a whole way of thinking that allows people to make better decisions. Uh, strong Tetlock. Yeah, I don't know this book. Well, you should read it. Super forecasters. Strong strong beliefs weekly held. So you got to have really smart people who are very passionate and strongly arguing for something. But then if they hear a better argument. They'll jump to it, so it's they're 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 just always like hypo- this. always hypothesis testing. So Kyle, let's order this book. You Tent should lock. get it. Yeah, get some ringer folks in here. Super strong beliefs that you're willing to just jump off of if somebody trumps your argument. If someone trumps your argument, exactly. Yeah. So the so, so you like having people in a room. You're all arguing about stuff, but it's not personal, right? And then if I say something, they just they just then tell they me listen I'm right. to you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>